Amen. I'm so excited to jump into this text with you today. As uh, we begin a, a little mini-series here this morning, the Lord has uh, been stirring my heart about one of the letters of the Apostle Paul. It's the letter, first letter to the Thessalonians. So if you got your Bible, I want to encourage you to, to begin to find your way there to the book of 1 Thessalonians. If you don't have a Bible, we have some there in the uh, book racks underneath the seat behind you or in front of you, and you're welcome to grab one of those. I'm going to throw a lot of scriptures up on the screen today, but you can kind of camp out there in our text. And uh, still looking for it, it's page 1,282 in my Bible. Probably won't help you, but give it a shot. I love the Word of God. I want to ask you to open your heart and open your ears as you open your Bible today and allow God to speak to your life. Allow him to encourage you through his word today. That's what he wants to do, church. God's not hiding. Amen. A lot of times we we make the mistake of of measuring God's faithfulness on our own emotions. And so we feel that, you know, if, if, if our emotions are off, God must be distant. God must be far away. God must not be listening because it doesn't feel the way it used to feel. And if it feels right, God's near. And if it feels off, God's far. But can I tell you that if anything, the opposite would be true. Now, God's with us all the time. And his proximity is not based on your uh, emotions. But the reality is the Bible says that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted, which means at the moment you probably feel the most numb, at the moment where you have the hardest time sensing His nearness or lifting your hands in worship, in the darkest seasons of the soul, God is closer than ever before. He wants to reveal Himself to you in His Word. And say, well, how does He do that? Well, I can tell you, this is not a leather-bound fortune cookie. We don't just open it up and grab out a little charm and, you know, okay, here's the word for today. It doesn't work that way. The Bible says in James that the word of God is a mirror into our soul. So when I open the book and, and I read the word, the word reads me. It shows me the areas of my life. The Bible says the spirit of God searches the hearts of man. And so as I read the word, it reads me. But also the word of God is a portrait. It's a portrait of the God of the word. So when I look in the Word of God, I learn what God is like. That's what we want to do this morning. We don't want to just look for that one little verse that just gives us that little oomph in our steps so we can go back and tackle another Monday. We want to know the God of the book. Amen? So as we open the Word, we come to it saying, Holy Spirit, show me the heart of God. Not just show me what I need to do about my finances or show me... Show me something I need to do with my marriage or, or give me some practical wisdom to deal with some uh, co-workers. No, show me Jesus. Show me God so that I can pursue him with all of my heart. So we're going to open the word today and we're going to ask God to speak to us through it in this little series. We're calling Contagious. Now, if you're sick today, maybe my title offends you. <laughs> Maybe you're bothered by the idea, like, well, why, why, this is not inspirational at all. But I looked up a definition, and you can work with my definition today. 
something that's contagious means it's transmissible by direct or indirect contact with an infected person. Second definition, exciting, similar emotions or conduct in others. Have you ever been around somebody that just has an infectious personality? They're just, man, when they're happy, the whole room's happy. There's something about this church in Thessalonica that that Paul wrote to, that Paul started, that they were contagious. There was something that they caught that affected and infected other people. It spread quickly. And, and I should say they caught it as much as they were taught it. I hope I can teach you something today. But I want you to know there's something deeper that, that is happening by the Spirit. And that's why this Word is the most powerful book in the world. Because the Bible says the Word of God is living and active. It's breathing right now. It's the Spirit of God breathing. So you're not just about to be taught something. The Spirit wants you to catch something when the Word of God goes forth. That's what happened in Thessalonica. Paul went there and he preached the Word. And they they caught it. In fact, we're going to look at just the first few verses in the first chapter today. But Paul preached down in verse 5. It says, the gospel came to you. Not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. He said in verse 5, you know how we lived among you for our sake. In other words, they saw something in his life. Now, if the Lord helps me, we'll get back to verse 5 before the end of this message. But I want to go back to the top, and I want to just share this word with you. I want to give you a little bit of a background because most people, they, they open the Bible and uh, the names don't mean much to us. The book of Thessalonians, maybe you know that, you know, that Thessalonica is a place. Maybe you don't. I mean, it's, it's unfamiliar to us. And a lot of people just read the word without context. I want to encourage you to, to get a good study Bible. Get a Bible that has a good introductory page. Because when you're reading the word, it benefits you to understand the context of who they were writing to and, and what was going on. So let me give you a little bit of a background this morning. Thessalonica was a metropolis. It was a busy city because of its location. Right in the middle of the, the first freeway uh, in history. It was right on the Ignatia Road. The Ignatia Road traveled all the way from the far east uh, to the west. And so Thessalonica became the, the center point. It became the place where commerce converged. Where from that point, literally, you could go anywhere. You could talk to anybody. Everything kind of centered in that area. Goods from the east and the west poured in there. And, and it was a place where both cultures kind of converged. In fact, there was a time where they were considering thessalonica to be the capital of the world in the roman empire they ended up going with constantinople but they were going to go uh they were going to go with thessalonica so what happens is in acts chapter 16 paul the apostle has this vision of a macedonian man a man from macedonia who's waving his arms and he said he's begging and he's saying come and help us and so paul receives that vision from god and, and from there, he, he says, the Lord is speaking to us to go. And for the first time, the gospel goes to Europe. Paul takes the gospel to Europe and he, and he preaches there. And, and in that trip, he took the gospel 
to the city of Thessalonica. But when he gets there, he's not just thinking about taking the gospel to a people. He's not thinking about a city or or a region or even a, a new nation or a new continent. He's thinking of the potential of the whole world. If if we can start a church here in Thessalonica, the gospel will go everywhere. This would be an incredible place for the gospel to spread to the whole world. And so Paul goes there and he preaches to these people. But unfortunately, like what happened to him a lot, is uh, a riot stirred up. And he got ran out of town, so he didn't get to stay very long. So Paul has to leave and, and he doesn't have time to stay and, and build the church the way he wanted to. So he's anxious to know how the church is doing. So as soon as he can, he sends Timothy, one of his co-workers, back to Thessalonica to see how the church is doing. Timothy goes, he meets the people, he talks to him, he gets the report, he goes back and he tells Paul. In response to that conversation, we get this letter. So Paul started the church. He got ran out of town. He sent Timothy back to see how they're doing. He got the report and then he wrote this letter to the church. Look at it with me. Verse 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This church is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this isn't a very old church, hasn't been around very long, and these people haven't been saved very long. A lot of these people, are, they're not Jewish people, they're Greek people, they don't have any, they don't have any spiritual uh, history or, or legacy of faith. And so this is significant when they get this letter from a known apostle, and he says, you are in God. You are, you are in God. It's like air. Right now, we are in the air, but also the air is in us. You can't escape it. That's the way it is to be in the family of God. You're in God right now. You're in God. Listen, I don't know what motivated you to come to church this morning. For some people, it's just religious duty. It's a sense of obligation. For other people, it might be fear. It might be uh, just a, a sense of the fear of the judgment of God. For some of you, maybe you came looking for something. You're longing for something. But can I just tell you this morning, you don't have to come to the house of God with any fear, with any sense of condemnation, with any sense of not measuring up. You know why? Because this is God's house you're in god this is the father's house today it's the father's house now i don't have time to go back to this but last week we talked about how being in a family reveals to us the nature of god can i just tell you that that more than any other title that god has he carries the name father very near to his heart so when people look at god as a god of justice they go "Ooh, he's a god of justice yes he is But he is a father God of justice. That feels different, doesn't it? Say, oh, he's he's a God of uh, of wrath. Yeah, but he's a he's a father of wrath. And every every title that he has can be can have father before it for us to have a better revelation of who God is. And you are in the father's house today. I want you to understand what. What you've come to. This is not the principal's office. It's the father's house. A lot of people come to church like they're coming to the principal's office. Maybe you never had that experience as a kid. That, that, that illustration works for me. We'll just... 
It's the Father's house. And that means His love trumps every other emotion that He carries. His love comes first. He loves you. He's welcoming you into the Father's house. And so the church is not a place for perfect people, but it's a place for forgiven people. Amen? It's a place for loved people. It's a place for people that are being perfected into the image of Christ, but we haven't arrived yet. There's two types of people that's been said in the world. There's those that still need to trust Jesus to save them. And there's those who have trusted Jesus to save them. Or there's those who have Jesus have saved that still need to trust him. It sounded better before I butchered it. What I'm saying is this, there's two types of people. There's people that need Jesus to save them, and there's people that are saved that need Jesus. We're all still in need of Jesus, amen? And so we come into the Father's house, and this word that he spoke to them was an encouraging word because he said, hey, I'm writing to you. You are in the church. You're in the family of God. And that's why his blessing that he's about to speak to him is good for us to receive too. The blessing is this, grace and peace to you grace and peace to you he he's speaking to different cultures and so grace was typically the gentile greeting and peace was the jewish greeting they would say shalom so he says grace and peace to you and we get both in jesus amen the grace of god is the root but the peace of god is the fruit that's why he always says grace and peace not peace and grace You don't get peace with God outside of the grace of God. It's by grace we're saved. And so because we have grace in Jesus, peace is ours today. Amen? Amen. Listen, if you're a note taker, I don't have any notes to tell you how to get peace outside of the grace of God. It's not self-help. It's grace. Amen? And then as, as Pastor Chris read earlier in Psalm 103, then we get all the benefits that follow grace. Then we get all the provisions and peace is one of those provisions that we receive. So Paul, he, he breaks into thanksgiving. He, he loves this church. He's happy about this church. And so he launches into this long segment of thanksgiving. And one of the reasons that I've drawn, uh, I've been drawn to this text today is because of my love for the church. Especially on a week like this week where, where we just get to be doing life together and doing ministry together and serving our community together. And, and Thursday night was such a blessing to me to see so many people, all hands on deck, just loving this community and, and loving people. And there's something about that that's contagious. There's something that's compelling about that. When the church operates the way that Jesus intended it to operate it, it's irresistible. People want to be a part of it. There's a lot of people, we've got to be honest and say, a lot of people, they would say, I don't have a problem with Jesus. Jesus is great. Bible's good. It's those church folks that I don't like. Right? But when you look at this church in Thessalonica, they were contagious. There was something about them that was, that was attractional. That, that word influence, right in the middle of that word influence is a little word, flu. Flu. And I think we ought to be contagious. I think we ought to have that kind of influence that that what we have gets on people. That they catch what the Spirit is doing in the church. Paul was thankful for three things. Three things that I want to give you this morning that he saw in this church. In fact, these three things that he loved about the church motivated him to pray for the church. So if if you want people in the church to pray for you, work on these three things. 
He said, these things, when I think about them, I pray for you. Look at verse 2 with me. We always thank God for all of you. And we continue to, we continue to mention you in our prayers. Here they are, verse 3. We remember before God, our Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is like Paul's favorite trilogy. Faith, hope, and love. These are the things that I see in you. He said, that, that inspire me to want to pray for the church. They, they stir my heart. I see your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. And as we study through the word, you're going to see why he inverted the list. Instead of saying uh, faith, hope, and love, he puts hope at the end because that's what they needed the most in that moment. But when he saw these things alive in this young church, in this metropolis area, he said, man, I'm encouraged. I'm stirred to pray. And I remember these things about the church. We remember, number one, your work produced by faith. Let me take you to another portion of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. This is what it says. Again, Paul writing. He says, for it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. That's the root of salvation I was talking about. It's grace. Verse 9 says, it is not by works so that no one can boast for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do so there's a little bit of a seeming contradiction there at first glance he says you are not saved by works but you were created in Christ to do good works you're not saved by your works but when Paul looks at this church he says you know what I'm amazed I'm amazed at your work that is produced by your faith. You have to have works. You were created in Christ to do good works. And though that sounds like a little bit of a contradiction to the gospel of grace, the reality is we're not working for salvation. We work from salvation. From the place of being saved, we're motivated to respond. Martin Luther said it like this. Martin Luther said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves us is never alone. Hebrews chapter 5 says it like this, verse 9. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Jesus said, You'll, I'll know you love me if you keep my commandments. He's the eternal source of salvation for all who obey him. There's, there's steps to our faith. There's obedience. There's a, a walk that follows a belief. James chapter 2 verse 17 said it like this. He said, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. James was trying to communicate. No, you're not. He wasn't contradicting Paul. He's not saying you need to have uh, works or you don't have faith. He's saying if you have real faith, you're going to have works. 
It's just going to be a part of it. If Jesus has radically changed your life, if he snatched you out of the the peril of uh, sin and shame and guilt and darkness, and he put his life on the inside of you, you're going to act different. You're going to have different motivation. You're going to be prompted to do good works. And he's not saying you have to work to be saved. But if we look at your life and there's no work, you're probably not saved. He's saying your works are not the entryway into salvation, but your works reveal the work of salvation in your life. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 says this. Whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Work at it with all your heart. That's why Paul could say, for me to live is Christ. Because everything he did, he worked at with all of his heart. And he said, to die is gain. Because he understood that the gospel doesn't just save your soul, it shapes your life. So to live is Christ. No matter what I'm doing, whatever I do, I'm going to do it unto the Lord. That's what Paul saw in this contagious church that he had planted. He saw people that were working. Yesterday morning, we had our men's breakfast and conversation got going at our table about what jobs men have and how they got into that job and do they like what they do. And, uh, you know, statistically, the majority of people hate their job. Not the guys that were at the table with me, but statistically, most people hate their job. I think that's why lottery tickets are so popular, because everybody wants the opportunity to get that winning ticket and say, I am never going back to that job again. I never have to work another day in my life. But can I tell you that winning the lottery is, uh, sorry, but it's not really God's plan for your life. You say, wow, why, why do you say that? Well, because God created work for man before there was sin in the garden. Work is the will of God. God wants you to work. Now, He wants you to enjoy it. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to be fulfilled. But He wants you to work. In fact, it's poor stewardship of your finances to invest in chance. But that's a different sermon. We'll leave that alone. It got real quiet there when I started messing with your lottery tickets. Whatever you do, 1 Corinthians says, do it all to the glory of God. Of God. It's been said the sign of true consecration. That's just a Bible word for someone that's fully given themselves to the will and the work of God. The most uh, true sign of consecration is when a man can find glory in drudgery. When a man can do a job that seems mundane or, or, or just something that he wouldn't find joy in, but all of a sudden he sees glory in it. Why? Because whatever my hand finds to do, I'm doing it unto the Lord. I'm doing this for God. I'm not doing this for man. I'm not doing it for a boss. I'm doing this for God. Christopher Wren was the man that designed St. Paul's Cathedral in London, one of the most beautiful buildings. And he wrote about the reaction of construction workers When they were asked a simple question. The question was, what are you doing? Those workers who were bored and tired responded by saying, I'm laying bricks or I'm carrying stones. But there was one worker who was mixing cement. He seemed unusually cheerful and enthusiastic about his work. 
And so he was asked the question, what are you doing? And his reply was, I'm building a magnificent cathedral. Are, are you laying bricks? Or are you building a cathedral? Are, are you just doing a job? Or are you doing something that's going to bring glory to God? There was something in this church about the way that they worked that was contagious. It was inspiring. Paul saw it. He said, we remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith. When I saw people this week working in the church, it caused me to remember you in prayer. It did. Friday, I was just reflecting. Now, as as was mentioned earlier in this service, we take time every week to pray for the needs of the church. But I'm just telling you, who was on the front of my heart? It's those people that I saw working. When I, when I got here on Friday, I, I saw all of you. I was prompted in this way by your love. I was prompted by your work to pray for you. Matthew says this, Matthew five sixteen. Jesus speaking. Many of you could quote this verse. He said, in the same way, let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. How do we let the light shine? By standing on the street with a post poster that says, turn or burn. No. That's not how we let our light shine. Let them see your good works. Let the world see us doing good. And it's going to have an impact. The second thing that he said there in 1 Thessalonians. Not only do we remember... Before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, but we remember your love, your labor rather, prompted by love. Your labor is prompted by love. And can I just say, this goes right to the core. This goes right to the motivation of the heart. Your labor, it almost sounds like work, but he's talking about the motivation base for it. Your labor prompted by love. But don't misunderstand this contagious church. They were not motivated to serve, motivated to labor, motivated to share the gospel because of their love. They weren't motivated by how much they loved the pagan culture that they lived in. They weren't motivated by how much they loved each other. No, the motivation was how much Christ loved them. They were motivated by love. The Bible says this. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, for Christ's love compels us. He's not, he's not just a driven guy. He was compelled by the love of Christ. The love of Christ that met him on the road to Damascus as he was on his way to persecute Christians and God showed up and struck him down and Jesus appeared to him in a vision and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It was the love of God that that struck him down in that moment, that captured his heart. And from that moment forward, God told him, you're going to be my witness, you're going to preach, you're going to face persecution, but you're going to do it all in my name. Paul was compelled by the love of Christ. He was so gripped by Christ that he got to the place where he even counted his own life as nothing in light of this love. He was so driven 
by the love of God, he said these words in Acts chapter 20. He said, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and to complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. See, these Thessalonians, they had experienced that. Paul came and preached. They, they were taught it and they caught it. They experienced the love of Jesus in their own hearts. They became so driven by it that love became the motivating force of the church. Can I tell you, if a church is going to be contagious, it's going to be motivated by love. It's not going to be motivated by a building program. It's not going to be motivated uh, by numbers. It's not going to be motivated by anything but love. It's not going to be motivated by a clever campaign, by an attractional speaker or good music. None of that stuff. If it's going to be contagious, it's going to be motivated by love. And how many of you know people feel that? They feel, they can tell if it's all just smoke and lights, if it's all just good music and engaging communicators. It's empty. If that's all we want, we'll watch The Tonight Show. They got better musicians and funnier personalities. But when we're motivated by love, the church becomes contagious. This love, it becomes the source of joy in the church. It really does. There's a lot of people that are looking for joy. Peter described what happened uh, at another place when somebody gives their life to Christ. When they come to faith, here's what he said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. That's, that's what I feel on Sunday mornings. An inexpressible and a glorious joy. I've never seen him, but I love him. I believe him. I receive him. You know what worship is? Worship is our attempt at expressing the inexpressible. That's what it is. When we stand up and we sing and we worship God, we're trying to express the inexpressible joy that we received when we found love. Love is not only the key to our joy, it's the key to us having hope whenever we pray. You remember the story of Lazarus? John 11, he was a good friend of Jesus. Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, and then Lazarus got sick. So Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus, hey, Lazarus is sick. You need to come and heal him. Make him better. Do you remember the story? What, what motivated them to call on Jesus? They didn't, they didn't say, hey, Jesus, one of your best friends is sick. They didn't say, hey, Jesus, one of the, one of the men who supports your ministry is sick. They didn't even say, Jesus, The one who loves you so much is sick. No, the hope that they had in Jesus to be their healer was his love. John chapter 11, verse 3. So the sisters sent word to Jesus saying, Lord, the one you love is sick. That was enough. That that was the whole message. That was the memo. Lazarus is on his deathbed and they had all the confidence in the world, all the hope in Jesus to be their healer, to be their source, to come through, not because of who Lazarus was or what they could say or what they had done 
or how much they cared about Jesus. They said, Jesus, we know how much you love him. Let that be the hope. Let that be the anchor for you when you pray. Don't come to God with this, this Lord, you know, we pray those Bart Simpson prayers. God, if you'll do this for me, I'll never do that again. If you'll get me out of this, I'll never. God is not motivated by your promises. He's motivated by his. Amen. The one you love is sick. Their hopes were hung on the love of Christ. Can I just say, if, if you labor in the church, Paul said, your labor is what, what touched my heart. Your labor prompted by love. If your labor is prompted by anything except the love of God, you know what's going to happen? You're going to quit. You're going to sign up for something, maybe because it sounded fun or a lot of other people were signing up for it. Or, and, and you're going to quit if you're motivated by anything other than love. Because it's labor. What I don't know what image comes to your mind when I think of labor. But it's not relaxing in Tahiti. It's, it's work. It's straining. It's stress. It's groaning. It's pain. Your labor was prompted by love. And if your labor in the church is prompted by anything but love, you're going to quit. Or worse, you won't quit. And you'll do it with a terrible attitude. And that church is not contagious. I can promise you. Some of us have been to that church before. Everybody's grumbling and complaining. Nobody likes what they're doing. They don't even know why they're here. Except somebody's got to do the job. And bless God, I've been doing it for 30 years. They were prompted by love. That's what makes a contagious church. Peter said this. 1 Peter 4, verse 11. If anyone should speak in the church, they should do it as one who speaks the word of God. And if anyone serves, they should do it with the strength that God provides. That's the motivation base for our labor. We do it in the strength that God provides. If you want to be a contagious Christian, if you want to be a contagious church, you know what we need to do? We just need to fall more in love with Jesus. We just need to fall more in love with Jesus because the love of God is going to be our motivator for our labor the love of God is also the motivator for evangelism. The Bible says in 1 John four nineteen, we love because he first loved us. Our motivation for love in this world is not just because we like people. No, we're, we're sinful. We're selfish. We're like everybody else. We put ourselves at the top of the priority list. Why would we sacrifice? Why would we give up a whole week? Why would we labor and serve and, and, and minister to other people? Because we're motivated by love. We're motivated by love. Paul was moved by the endurance of this church. He was moved by their endurance. This is the third thing. He said, we remember your endurance. I'm still in verse 3. Your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Your endurance Inspired by hope. What did they have to endure? Persecution. Persecution against the church. Paul and Silas, Silas and Timothy were with him. But in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas had seen the vision, Macedonian man. They went to Philippi. They preached. It was going great. And then not so great. They were arrested. They were beaten with rods. They were thrown in a prison. 
Then, then God delivered them out of that situation. There was an earthquake. The shackles fell off. The, they were asked to leave that city. So they left that city and they went to Thessalonica. This church. So probably still pretty fresh scabs on their back. Still some open sores. They've just been beaten with an inch of their life. And so now they've left that city and they go to Thessalonica and they preach. And, and there's a warm reception for the first three Sundays they were allowed to preach in the synagogue. It was awesome. And then not so awesome. People got jealous. Another riot. People kicked Paul out of town. And so here's this church. Man, these people just got saved. They just started in their faith. They're, I mean, they're just celebrating what God is doing. And all of a sudden... There's Jews who rise up and they start a riot. In fact, it got so intense that the church had to hide Paul at one of the church members' house. They were probably at life group. And the Bible says this life group leader, his name was Jason. They went to his house and they ransacked the place and they couldn't find Paul. So the Bible says in Acts 17, they took Jason and they drug him out into the street. And they said, this guy and all the other guys with him are turning the world upside down, and now they've come here too. What an awesome accusation to have set against the church, right? These people have turned the world upside down, and they've come here too. Paul was probably hiding somewhere going, Amen! (laughs) Meanwhile, the life group leader's out in the street. Jason got arrested. Be careful who you invite to your life group. You got to... Check their history. They might have a record. Somebody's going to come to your house and drag you out in the street. Jason and the others with him ended up having to pay a bail. These guys were arrested. I mean, they just started this. This is like brand new. Oh, yes, Jesus, you know, we love you. And all of a sudden, man, their house is being ransacked. Things are not going well. Later that same night, they realized that, man, there's, there's a riot. We've got to get you out of here. So they secretly got Paul and Silas out of town. Those people in Thessalonica were so riled up that Paul left town. He went to Berea, and he started preaching over there. And guess what? God started moving there too. But those people in Thessalonica came over to Berea, and they stirred them all up, and they started another riot. He had to leave and go to Athens. The, peop- the church in Thessalonica was dealing with some intense persecution. They were dealing with some people that were, you know, riding in the streets, throwing coke, coke bottles at the cop cars. And, you know, they're going, man, this is, this is intense. And Paul, writing to that church, after Timothy's come back and told him what's going on since you left and went to Berea and left there and went to Athens. Paul gets the word and he says, I'm, in- I'm inspired. I remember you in prayer because of your endurance that's inspired by the hope that you have. Paul was afraid that what was going to happen is these Christians were going to get intimidated. He was afraid that they were going to allow the devil to tempt them to lose heart and to turn back from God. Say, how do I know that? Well, in 1 Thessalonians there, if you... Just skip forward to chapter 3 for a minute. I'm sorry, spoiler alert. Chapter 3, verse 6, Paul says, he says, But Timothy has just now come to us. 
from you. Timothy's gone, he's come back. And he's brought us some good news about your faith and love. He told us that you always have pleasant memories of us. Can you imagine? Hey, you remember that time when Paul was hiding in your laundry basket and Jason, you got drug out in the street? He said, you always have fond, pleasant memories of us. I just laugh at that. And that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, he says, brothers and sisters, in all of our distress and persecution, we were encouraged because of your faith. We were encouraged because of your faith. He said, back in verse, I believe it's verse 5. In chapter 3, he said, for this reason, when I could stand it no longer, here's the reason he sent Timothy. I sent to find out about your faith. I was terrified that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labor might have been in vain. He was concerned. He was concerned. Can I just tell you, everybody faces storms. You're not alone in that. And I don't say that to minimize your situation. I say it as a word of comfort. Everybody faces storms. This church was facing persecution. Paul's fear was, and this is our fear sometimes, when we see a brother or sister going through difficulties, we go, oh, I I hope they don't lose hope. I hope they don't give up. I hope they don't get so discouraged. I hope that that sorrow doesn't overwhelm them so much that they quit on God, that they they leave the church. I hope that this this doesn't shake them beyond what they can take. That was Paul's fear. He said, I'm afraid the devil is going to come in and tempt you and then all of our work would have been in vain. Everybody goes through storms. But can I tell you something? When a Christian goes through a storm, it elevates your opportunity to be a witness. Pain is a platform. Sorrow is a stage that we can display the hope that we have in Christ. When you go through tough stuff, when things are difficult and you don't know how it's going to work out, all of a sudden, you have a greater opportunity to be a witness. Suffering isn't an obstacle to being used by God. It's an opportunity to be used like never before. One of the qualities of a contagious church, and this isn't something that we want, you're like, oh yeah, I can't wait for that to happen, but... It's the truth. One of the qualities of a contagious church or a contagious Christian is one that holds on to hope in the worst storm. And we don't hope for the storm, but we know it's inevitable. It's coming. And when that moment comes and people look at you and they wonder, okay, how are you going to handle it now? I mean, I heard you telling me I need Jesus and everything, but you need Jesus. Look at what's going on in your life. How are you going to handle it now? All of the sudden... Our pain gives us a microphone. We have an opportunity to to speak louder about the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Billy Graham said this. What oxygen is to the lungs, hope is to our survival in the world. We got to have hope. We got to have hope. It was... 
part of Air Force training, they have what's called the rule of three. Maybe you've heard of this before. The rule of three goes something like this. In a survival situation, you can last three weeks without food. Three days without water. Three hours without shelter in extreme conditions. And three minutes without air. But you can't last three seconds without hope. We have to have hope. That's what was so contagious and so compelling about this church. As they were facing persecution, as they were dealing with the the tough stuff of life, they didn't ask for. It just showed up at their door one day. They held on to hope. I want to give you one more verse today because as I prepared for today, I sense that maybe there's a lot of people in this place and, and this is where you're at. You're trying to hold on to hope. And here's the verse. It's in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, let me just break this down for you quickly and then we're going to close in prayer. What he's saying in this moment He's saying that we have hope as an anchor for the soul and that it's beyond the veil. What what is that talking about? It's talking about the holy of holies, not the the physical prototype on the earth, the, the archetype. He's talking about heaven. He's talking about the place where God is. We have an anchor and that anchor is beyond the veil. It's in heaven. And he said, we have a forerunner who has gone there. That's Jesus. When Jesus rose from the dead on the third day after he died on the cross for our sins, the Bible says 40 days later he ascended. Where did he go? He went into the Holy of Holies. He went back to the very presence of God. That's what this verse is talking about. He's a forerunner. He's he's blazed the trail so that when you die, you can follow in his footsteps and you can go to the place where your anchor is, beyond the veil. Let me share something with you because this is just this... So fascinating, it blessed me. The word for forerunner, that's translated as forerunner, in the original language, is prodromos. Now, I know it didn't bless you yet. Stay with me. You're like, oh, yeah, that's good. Let me give you the definition. It's a word that describes a pilot boat that would go ahead of a large vessel and bring its anchor into the harbor that was difficult to navigate. See, in in the ancient Roman Empire, the port of Alexandria was notoriously dangerous. So the big ships, they would come up uh, to the edge of the harbor and they would stop until a uh, prodromos, and I can't promise you I'm saying that right, would pull up. This smaller boat would pull up and they would take the anchor of the larger vessel, and they would move in to the harbor, and once it was taken to shore, then that larger ship would slowly and safely be winched in. They would just, they would winch it in, they would bring it in to the harbor. That's the picture. Can I tell you this morning that Jesus is the anchor? He's the forerunner. He's the prodromos. He's the one that went before us beyond the veil into the holy of holies. He's at the right hand of God. And every day of your life, every struggle you face, every victory you have, you know what's happening? He's winching you in. 
He's bringing you in. Amen. He's bringing us in. Now, here's the thing about an anchor. If an anchor is going to be effective, it has to be attached to something. If you've ever dropped an anchor and forgot to tie it off, you know this. It doesn't matter how big it is, doesn't matter how strong it is, you throw that thing out and you're not tied to it, it's not going to do you any good. But here's the good news, that the anchor, Jesus, the anchor for our soul, has a rope. It has a rope. Jesus is the anchor, no doubt, but hope has a rope, and the rope is the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus said, I'm, I'm going to the Father. I'm, I'm taking the anchor beyond the veil, and I'm going to pull you in. But when I go, I'm, I'm bringing the rope back. I'm sending the Holy Spirit. He's going to comfort you. He's going to guide you. He's going to fill you. He's going to be with you. He's going to keep the tension on the line so that you know that hope has an anchor. And you know what the Holy Spirit wants to do? He wants to take the slack out of your rope today. Because that's what happens in our lives. We let sin, we let circumstances put too much slack in the line. We can't see it anymore. We don't know what the future holds. But when we open up our hearts and say, Holy Spirit, would you come? As we sang earlier, as we invited the Holy Spirit, Spirit of the living God, come and have your way. Come and move. All of a sudden, we start to feel the tension. Heaven starts to feel a little bit more real. It starts to feel a little bit more like where we're going. And all of a sudden, we start to feel the Spirit. What's He doing? He's he's pulling us in. He's pulling us in. Paul looked at this church. They were facing stuff that most people would quit. And he was afraid they were going to quit. But then he, he got the word from Timothy. He said, your endurance... Inspired, inspired by love, by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a contagious church. God wants us to be a contagious church. He wants us to be contagious people. And maybe you're here today and, and you need hope. Maybe today you're struggling because you're having a hard time just hanging on and believing and just trusting. I want to pray for you today. I want to ask God to... To, to put tension in the line so that you feel that tug and you know that, you know what, He hasn't let me go. He hasn't forsaken me. He hasn't abandoned me. The Holy Spirit is here in this moment. Hope has a rope and I can feel in my grip today that God is drawing me ever near. Would you stand with me all over this room? I know it's after 12. We're going to dismiss But I just, we're going to put some worship on just to set the atmosphere for a moment. And I just want to pray for you. As we did earlier in this service, I just want us to take a moment to call on God. To just call out to Him. From right where you stand. Father, I just thank you for this church. As as we said earlier in this service, we're so grateful for the family of God that you've called us to be a part of. I'm thankful, God, for the work that's being produced by faith. This is not a church that we just show up to just get another word, to just get another encouragement. 
God, this is a church. This is people that love you. And we're compelled to serve. We're compelled to do good works so that our light can shine before men. God, help us to have a fresh perspective this week. Maybe there's somebody here, they've been frustrated in their job. They've been frustrated with the the tediousness maybe of just cleaning the house, doing the dishes, the unending piles of laundry. They've been frustrated with taking care of their toddler. Whatever the job might be, God, give us a fresh perspective. We don't want to stack bricks. We want to build a cathedral. We want, we want our work to speak to your glory and to your honor. We want people to look at us and wonder, where does that joy come from? Where does that enthusiasm well up from? What is it about them that they can find joy in something that other, other people find as mundane? Father, I thank you, Lord, that this is a church that's prompted by love. God, I pray for the one or the many that might be here and our motivation base has not been the love of God. Our motivation base, maybe it's been works. Feeling like if I do enough, God will love me. If I, if I serve, God will forgive me. If I help somebody else, if I give, God help us today to recognize with fresh eyes that we could never do anything to make you love us more. And we could never do anything to make you love us less. We are in the Father's love. And God, it's your love that prompts us to labor, to give of ourselves, to give ourselves away. Father, I pray right now that that love would just move into this moment to the one that may feel far from God. If that's you today, would you just, in your own heart, in your own words, just begin to receive the Father's love. Just receive it. So God, I'm not going to try to earn it anymore. I receive it. It's a gift. Salvation is a gift. But you've got to open it. And the way you open that gift is faith. Right where you're standing. Just say, God, I receive your love. I receive your forgiveness. Lord, I'm going to be motivated not by guilt, not by condemnation, not by good works. Lord, I'm going to let your love compel me. Father, I pray today for, for those who are looking, looking for hope. And for them, there's just too much slack in the line. Jesus, our anchor, has gone beyond the veil. But we, we don't sense that nearness. Father, I pray that you would just let your Holy Spirit flow into this moment right now. If that's you today, would you just lift your hands towards heaven and say, Holy Spirit, would you come near to me right now? Holy Spirit, fill my heart. Holy Spirit, fill my life. Let me feel that gentle tug again to know you're near, to know that you haven't forsaken me, that you haven't abandoned me. God, remind me today by your spirit that you are in fact close to the brokenhearted, that you do save those who are crushed in spirit. God, help me to sense that tug again in my heart that lets me know that God, you haven't abandoned me, that you're for me, you're not against me. And God, I pray that, Lord, for those that are struggling today, Lord, let their pain be a platform. God, that others would see them and stand in awe at the endurance that they have. 
because of the hope that is an anchor for our souls. God, we thank you for your word today. Let it be life and strength to us. In Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. 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 God bless you today, church. We love you.